On this episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, you'll hear us tell you all about September of 1985. That may seem like an odd exercise, but we think you'll be just as fascinated as we are by everything that occurred during that extraordinary set of weeks. Frank Zappa scolded Tipper Gore. We wanted our MTV. Indie power pop hit the major labels. Farmers found a forever friend in Willie Nelson. And yep, we also built this city on rock and roll. Oh, what a month. So put on your flamingo pink and whip out all the hairspray and join us in this look back machine. Welcome, everyone, to the 21st edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Gwangju, South Korea. And with me, as always, is Chris O'Connor from Houston, Texas. Actually, an hour outside of Houston, but doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, hey, you're about two hours outside of Seoul, so what the hell? You know, four four hours actually. <laughs> oh, four hours. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, folks, this is, and more specifically, rock music geek folks. This is your podcast made made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders such as yourselves. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before. <laughs> right, okay. Chris. No, ab- yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. We are we are fonts of knowledge, or at least we think we are. Uh, sometimes, you know, you are the oracle of facts. I am the oracle of of musing, which means sometimes Prince ends up as the car- guitarist for Blind Melon. Uh, we, <laughs> we we understand that, but that's what makes us so endearing. And you know, we we are serious folks. Uh, Arturo is one of the great uh, digging in the crates. Uh, uh, you're, I think you're a little bit beyond amateur. I think you're, uh, you're, you're a curator. Uh, you're a curator's curator. I should uh, be making, I should be making money from this shit. Yeah. No, yeah. No fooling. <laughs> and, uh, once upon a time I did make money from this stuff. Um, I, I'll, I'll always say it. I was a lucky, lucky dude. Uh, I kind of talked my way into it, but, uh, I learned an awful lot and, uh, and here I am. Uh, I, became an encyclopedia too although i will admit this about 30 percent of what i know and maybe that's a modest underestimate uh comes from my associations with mr andrade so Mm. that's all to say we're here to uh be reverent uh we're here to teach we're here to inform what the fuck let's have some fun let's be reverent and irreverent (laughs) yes ear irreverent yes exactly you know picture an ear be irreverent Ha, 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 ha. See how that goes? Yeah, got it. All right. Well, as uh, some of you heard, in, uh, in the, as you all heard in the teaser, um, we are, we'll be talking about a one, one specific month of the, in the history of rock music, September of 1985, when Chris and I were wee little curmudgeons going, yes. into, fifth, going into fifth grade. And a whole lot of shit happened that actually kind of, kind of altered the decade of the eighties and for, for the rest of the decade. Yeah. And, you know? and actually beyond, I mean, it, it, it's surprising that, you know, rock and roll, I mean, is a study in moments. Think about like a, the, the summer of love, which actually was a thing, 
yeah. or uh, like Altamont, which was one day, yeah, uh, which you know actually uh, changed some trajectory. But first, you can hear that sound, folks. It's 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 mysterious. It's wondrous. It's something straight out of an Ed Wood film. We are coming now into the parallel universe where green may be blue and up may be down, but the rock and roll that you and I love and know is the stuff of grandeur is still on the big stages, is still the subject of conversations, uh, and it's not relegated to the third or fourth story or the back of the book. Uh, it's actually on the cover. Move over, Olivia Rodrigo and Future, uh, and make room for some of the artists that we'll talk about today and their new albums. As usual, Arturo, you go first. Uh, Who are you vibing on in the Parallel Universe this week? Yes, I'm vibing on the most recent album by uh, Philadelphia folk rock singer-songwriter Steve Gunn and his latest album called Other You. Other You. now, Gunn, this guy's been around for more than a decade. And like I said uh, just a, a few seconds ago, he comes from the same laid-back, classic rock-loving Philadelphia scene that gave us uh, Kurt Vile and the War on Drugs. And for a little while, in the early teens, last decade, he was actually a guitarist in Kurt Vile's band, The Violators. Now, while the War on Drugs classic rock touchstones are Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty, and Kurt Viles are Lou Reed and Tom Petty. Notice Tom Petty's there twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly, as, as he should be. Yeah. Um, Gunn's brand of slightly psychedelic folk rock has a very distinctly grateful deadish vibe. And when I make the comparisons to the dead, I don't mean it in the fish way. You know, take a song and make it into a sprawling 20-minute jam. You know, um, Gunn is more influenced by the concise focused, structured song style of the dead. Uh, He's more American beauty than Anthem of the Sun, you know? And uh, yes, for all you jam band haters out there, the Grateful Dead were actually really good songwriters who could write short, economic, tight pop songs. They just chose not to do so most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, they were about half and half. I mean, like Blues for Isla is like one of those something for everybody records, which is why I love it. Uh, so it's like short and long, but anyway, uh, let us digress. Yes. Yes. There is a lot of working man's dead to be found in the Steve Gunn, uh, 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 aura. Yeah. In all his albums really. And here's the thing though. Gunn has more in his arsenal. Get it? Steve Gunn arsenal. Ha ha. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) He, he had the dead influence of course, but in interviews he's admitted to being a huge fan of like all those old time folk guitar virtuosos like John Fahey and Robbie Basho. And uh, he's a lover of classical Indian music. And you can kind of hear it um, in some of his albums. It all coalesces into this unique kind of a deceptively complex folk driven rock that doesn't really replicate his influences, unlike a lot of others out there. Um, when he started out, he was known more for his trippy, slinky, liquid-like guitar sound. 
However, in recent years, he's really come into his own as a songwriter. Um, 2014's Way Out Weather is, in my opinion, a modern-day classic and an excellent example of great musicianship and great songwriting peaking at the same time, which you really don't get that often. Um, 2016's Eyes on the Lines uh, rocked and grooved more than he ever had before. It's another great album. And his, re- his, most, his most recent album, before this one, uh, the 2019 album, uh, the, C- the Unseen In Between, it's got some great stuff on it too. Um, as for his new album, Other You, Gun mellows out a bit. He gets a little more laid back, gets introspective, and comes up with an album, in my opinion, of pure shimmering beauty. Uh, um, that patented, slinky, liquidy guitar sound is still there. But this time it provides a cushion for, if not his best set of songs, certainly the prettiest music he's ever made. Um, songs like Circuit Rider, Protection, and On the Way, they never feel rushed, yet they have this subtle propulsion to them, highlighted by his, you know, these really ca- subliminally catchy, not overtly catchy, uh, loping melodies and increasingly psychedelicized abstractly philosophical lyrics gun has gotten to the point where you don't really care about his lyrics anymore you just want to hear his voice sing something and get lost in the music that's pretty much what gun is at this point so if you're into immaculately crafted songs with understatedly understatedly great guitar playing and like a woozy trippy laid-back folk rock groove that stops just sort of entering cliche hippie territory Steve Gunn is your jam. Yeah, and he's not quite mine, uh, only in the sense that there's a, um, it's pretty, uh, it's gentle, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and uh, he's obviously a gifted musician, and the melody choices are obviously deliberate. Yeah. Uh, You know, you can tell if he wanted to be Cole Porter, he probably could, Yeah, Uh, but uh, you know, to me, it you know, look. It's only been a couple of listens, and so you know, talk to me in two months if I if I really get back to it. I'm not really inspired to right now, uh, but it it just bores me. It's a lovely bore. Uh, I will say this: I do like uh, the song "Good Wind." Uh, the guy writes a really nice, like you said, a trippy waltz. It's yeah. definitely a trippy waltz, um, and you know, the lyrics uh, are there. And there, he's got a kind of a mis. There's a mystique to his voice. So yeah, I'll, I'll say he's an original. He's just like not really. And you'd be surprised because I've been into some guys in this vein. He's not really my cup of tea. Um, and it's interesting, like him and Kurt Vile in the same band. Uh, I don't necessarily picture that. You know, I mean, you know, I mean. And then also, you know, if you like connect them to Granzuziel from uh, the War on Drugs, it's like three things that do they really go together? Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I, I guess Philly had diversity and an appreciation for each other's talents, I suppose. But uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, look, Steve Gunn is worth the investigation, but meh. Well, speaking of folk, <laughs> folk music. Another artist heavily influenced by folk and country, for that matter. I, actually, yeah. I consider I, I consider her more of a country artist. But anyway, 
Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, I just, well, I, I think of her as one of the best songwriters in America and just a, a wonderful voice. So let me set this up. Now, she should be huge. Alas, she's only sort of a big deal. Uh, mainly contained to rock charts and some gimmicky mainstream love for forming the High Women, which is a country singer-songwriter supergroup thingy uh, with a few other uh, sort of well-known uh, songwriter songstresses that, you know, indie folks like in places like Austin uh, dig. And look, she did get uh, six Grammy nominations in 2018, kind of like a participation trophy. So she's been around for 15 years, uh, critically lauded. And yeah, again, she's sold some records. She went gold uh, with uh, 2007's The Story, which is her mm. best record. So now here we are in 2021. Like I said, she should be huge. She should be as big a star as there is in a country because she is a star. I mean, she just explodes off the out of the speakers. She's charismatic as hell. Uh, really, really great artist. So a few things to set this up and talk about uh, this new record. Now, perhaps her most famous song, 2007's The Story, uh, she sang, she sings in that song, all of these lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. So many stories of where I've been and how I got to where I am. She was 26 at the time. That's pretty profound stuff and wisely romantic way beyond her years. Well, now here she is as at 40. And Carlisle, like I said, not exactly a well-kept secret anymore is at her most confident and effortless on this new album, again called In These Silent Days. She'll never fully abandon her country-western leanings, but here uh, she reminds me of Paul Simon, Carol King, and John Prine. These are the kinds of songwriters and artists uh, that never made it sound difficult. Yeah. The right words fit the right melodies, and the right melodies fit the right arrangements consistently. Uh, it just, you don't really picture anybody playing. It's just this sort of, uh, it hits you and it's just a really, uh, impressive, uh, hypnotic, uh, listen. Now this is not to say this is her best album. That is still 2007's The Story. And while the, the empathy and graceful maturity, joy and hope that emerge as major themes never relent, uh, this album itself runs out of gas about two thirds of the way through. And the remaining songs amble and groan towards the finish a little too much. Until then, though, Carlisle is the rock and roll Wonder Woman, at least in the maturity bracket. Now, Amy Taylor of Amel and the, and the Sniffers is the commander of the Brats. Uh, Carlisle doesn't overly rumble as much as she did a decade ago, nor does she pine like a breathy chanteuse. But this album is just an engrossing listen from a woman who knows who she is and is romantic as ever. Uh, these are probably my favorite lyrics by anyone this year from the song uh, Letter to the Past. You're a stone wall in a world full of rubber bands. You're a pillar of belief still fighting your empty hands. Folks are going to lean on you and leave when the cracks appear. But darling, I'll be here. I'll be the last. You're my letter to the past. Chances are I may sing that to my wife once or twice. Oh, yeah, I, I am. That's what you're romantic. But that is wonderful. 
And then there's this close runner up from the song You and Me on the Rock, which is just, I mean, just a wonderful pop, just a, basically a perfect pop song where she said she sings, I build a house up on this rock, baby, every day with you. There's nothing in that town I need after everything we've been through. Me out in my garden and you out on your walk is all the distance this girl, old girl could take. Without listening to you talk, I don't need their money, baby. Just you and me on the rock. Powerful, lovely, beautiful stuff from a powerful artist with powerful pipes full of conviction, which may coincidentally, you know, just, you know, explain why she's a serious contender to front a reformed Soundgarden. Again, I'm not kidding. Uh, look this up. Uh, all hail Brandy Carlisle. So that's that's my thoughts. Yeah, my, my thing about Brandy Carlisle, I mean, I, I consider her a country artist because most of what she does is really country music. Um, or, or that's the base of almost everything she does while she goes off into other areas. But one thing I do respect and admire about her is that uh, country music in general has got a pretty conservative culture around it and within it. Um, as beautifully detailed in Robert Altman's 1975 classic Nashville. And uh, a lot of the conservative ideology around country music still persists to this day. It just has shinier, uh, shinier, prettier clothes and more upbeat stuff, but it's still conservative. And Brandi Carlisle is very open as a homosexual Yes. Uh, who's who's married to a woman and she's never she's never shied away from it and uh i suspect that's probably one of the reasons why she's never uh uh crossed over to a mainstream country audience is no. because is because of her out her uh, out front sexuality you know yeah and personally i kind of would think she doesn't give a shit yeah, uh, which look, is just fine. Which is fine too. But look, but she is but she is talented, and she deserves to be heard by a wider mainstream country audience, not just you know the the the, the Sturgill Simpson crowd. All right. Well, that that that's that's a good is a good mention. We went two uh, serious. Uh, well, one one is country, one is country influenced artist in our parallel, and they would seep right into one of the main one of the ten topics, one of the ten points of our main topic uh, for this episode, and that is the singular month of September 1985. Shall I uh, introduce this, Chris? You shall. I shall. All right. Now, why did um, we, and I know uh, you for you listeners out there, uh, we tend to have top 10 lists of things involving rock, you know, who's better, who's great, who's overrated, who's underrated, albums that suck, albums that aren't, blah, blah, blah. We're doing a little different this time, and differently, I should say. And why are we doing it a little differently? Well, let's just say today's episode resulted from something of a happy accident. Um, A little before September 11th, yours truly, Chris, uh, reviewed September 11th, 2001 releases you know, the 20th anniversary of 2000 of 9-11. And uh, one of those albums that came up was Slayer's God Hates Us All. Great, <laughs> great album title. Yep. Now, that Slayer, probably the only time you're ever going to hear Slayer on this broadcast, on this podcast, triggered Maybe. some yeah, triggered some memories uh, in Chris of the battle over rock lyrics and warning labels which started with the PMRC hearings in Congress in which uh, John Denver, D. Snyder, 
Al Gore and Frank Zappa <laughs> officially became fodder for the same sentence, which they never would again after that. So, uh, Senor Chris researched these hearings a bit and wondered, man, what else happened in the month of September 1985? As it turns out, a whole shitload. Indeed. Uh, MTV was king, of course, but a few important corners were turned and a few monumental bombs were dropped into the rock and roll cannon for better and definitely for worse. So, as you know, many of the, as you listeners know, one of the curmudgeon rock reports purposes as your rock geek iconoclast leaders is to capture moments in time and keep them exciting, fresh and informative and alive as well. Uh, iHeartRadio, which used to be Clear Channel, you will never kill our spirit of radio. Long live Rush. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. R.I.P. Neil Pert. Yeah. <laughs> that said, oh, what a month, September 1985. It's something uh, that we're doing for the first time. And uh, saying that, welcome back in a time machine to September 1985 when your little curmudgeons were nothing more than little curmudgeons entering fifth grade in the entering pangs, pangs of puberty and when everyone still wanted their MTV and when even you, the listener, probably wore aqua blue. Ronan Giovanni, author of an excellent recent book on the band Pearl Jam, Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense, has a good line about the band's epic debut album, 1991's 10. Giovanni writes, Is 10 a good album? It's almost beside the point. Like asking if the Atlantic is a good ocean. 10 exists, and it always will, as long as people listen to bombastic rock. And that's all we need to say about that. This is an unpretentious, matter-of-fact observation in a book full of them. While Giovanni is a concert producer, music business guy, as well as a writer, he's also a fan, who, like your curmudgeons, leaned on Pearl Jam's music in high school and in college for inspiration and survival. Giovanni tells us he's seen the band at least 57 times. He uses all of that collective experience and intense personal connection to weave an in-the-moment narrative we can't quite call a biography or a social history or a generational commentary. To borrow Giovanni's own line, it's almost beside the point. Not for you, Pearl Jam in the present tense is its own thing, man. We strongly suggest you invest in these pages, whether through Amazon or, hey, a local bookstore or record store. So, Chris, you're a bit of a news hound. Tell us, aside from music or music-related things, what else happened in September 1985? Yeah, really, really interesting month. Uh, so you had Pete Rose uh, passing Ty Cobb as the all-time hits leader uh, in baseball. Uh two of the biggest assholes in the history of sports in the same sentence. Uh, but that was a big deal for months leading up to that. Uh, you had the UK race riots that broke out in Birmingham and Brixton. Uh, and just like they did in the seventies, that was, uh, became good material for lots of, uh, British punk bands and, uh, sort of underground uh, acts. Uh, Ronald Reagan finally got serious about South Africa and uh, sanctioned them over apartheid. 
you had the Robert Bork hearings, uh, you know, for Supreme Court, and that launched the never-ending cycle of ideological cockblocking. Uh, you had the MLB cocaine quote-unquote scandal going on, and the, the drug dealers on trial. Uh, you had all the Tylenol uh, cyanide shit going on, if you remember that, with all the tainted Tylenol. And then Howard Stern got himself fired from WNBC, which, depending on your perspective, was either the best thing or the worst thing to ever happen to radio. So just wanted to mention that. Uh, it, was, so- it, was def- it was definitely the best thing that ever happened to Howard Stern. Well, yeah, no fool one, but, but, but also radio. I mean, you know, look, I mean, the, the shock jock thing you know, broke out really with him. So, yeah. so that, that, so that's really the, uh, the backdrop. See, you know, this is, this is very eighties and, uh, and obviously, you know, you had stuff like crack and homelessness and the Contras and all of that, but that was not endemic to September. All that stuff was. So, uh, with that said, uh, let us launch into our musical uh, exploration of September 1985. I think, uh, folks, you're going to be blown away that all of this shit happened uh, within three or four weeks of each other. Yeah, no shit. First, first point, first item point: the Hot 100, the Billboard Hot 100 singles charts for September 28th, 1985, which happens to be my birthday. I turned yes. ten years. I turned ten years old on that day. And boy, what a lot of shit was on the charts at this time. Good God! Oh, well, I mean, it depends on your perspective, but this is a uh, this is a, an indicative month. I mean, this was like a golden age for top forty uh, radio and stuff that sticks with us. Uh, iconic stuff that still shows up in movies and commercials, and uh, college freshmen singing uh, stuff ironically in bars. Yeah, uh, so. I'll read off this top 10 and then we'll talk about a little bit about why this one is particularly important for rock history. So uh, this is kind of funny, but it's also kind of amazing. So this is the top 10 on September 28th, 1985. Number one, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Uh, Two, Not a bad song. That's all right. I like that. Cherished by Cool and the Gang. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, a very much far step down from the 1974 Cool in the Gang. Yeah. Uh, when they were doing all that funky stuff with the horns. Yeah. Freedom by Wham. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> it's a fun song. Uh, and then uh, Don't Lose My Number by Phil Collins. Oh, Terrible God. song with a, with a fabulous, wonderful video, one of the best of all time. <laughs> uh, oh, Sheila by Ready for the World. Oh God! Uh, which is still to these days that is a big time earworm. Then you have "Dress You Up" uh, by Madonna, uh, which is one of her more underrated uh, pop songs. Man, that's just pure sugar. Uh, and then seven, "Take On Me" by Aha, Ugh. which will never die, never ever ever die. That uh, that guy in the pencil black and white sketchings will always break through the mirror in our minds. Uh, number eight, "Selling Almost Fire." Man in Motion by John Parr. Stay tuned uh, for that one. Uh, number nine was Saving All My Love for You by Whitney Houston. Oh, wow. And, that, that, that song's from that year? Jeez. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and then number 10 was Lonely All Night by John Mellencamp. Uh, that was That's a good sca- song. I like that. Yes. Scarecrow, which is John Kellen, uh, Mellencamp's uh, best album and arguably the best album in 1985. Uh, came out the month before in August. Now, the most important thing to note about this top 10, this is Whitney Houston's first foray into the top 10. 
Uh, this song had been uh, her album actually was released, if I'm not mistaken, in 1984. Yeah, the, the album's from '84. Yeah, her first one. And it just slowly, slowly, slow burning. You know, Clive Davis still had the confidence in her. And here's a, this is when she finally reached this week is when she finally reached the top 10, which means that Whitney Houston had arrived. And as we all know, between 1985 and 1993, Whitney Houston was the dominant uh, artist on the pop charts. Everything well, 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 her and Madonna. Yeah, I would say those two. I mean, they were neck and neck, but I think uh, I will always, uh, the cover of I Will Always Love You. Uh, puts Whitney yeah. over the top. Number two. Now, uh, in the summer of 1985, there was a wonderful event called Live Aid, which was all, you know, all, every big name in rock and pop that you can think of uh, doing these. Uh, it was at three different stadiums, I think. One in London's Wembley, one in Washington, D.C. I think there's another one somewhere else. I'm not no, sure. No, actually, it was London and Philly. Okay, I'm, those were the I'm, two. I'm fact-checking yeah. you. And Phil okay. Collins played it both. Phil Collins played drums for Led Zeppelin. He gads. Yeah, I know. Um, Phil is everywhere. <laughs> Ubiquitous Phil. Anyway, uh, in, in uh, one of those two, Live Aid, which is a benefit to raise money for starving countries in Africa, right? Um, in one of these Live Aids, particularly the July 13th one, not sure if it was Philly or London, Bob Dylan performed. And, um, you know, he, of course, everyone knew this is about raising money for for poor, starving families and children in certain African countries. And uh, he made comments on stage while performing well, between songs, of course. Uh, and, and Dylan doesn't usually or never and still doesn't usually do this. This is more this is more Bruce Springsteen territory. But apparently Bob Dylan felt the need to say something. Um, and he made comments about family farmers uh, in the United States in danger of losing their farms uh, through mortgage debt, you know, predatory banks, you know, lending money that they know can never be paid. So this is their way of seizing property. Right. You know, dirty motherfuckers that they are. But anyway, um, Dylan saying to the worldwide audience, exceeding one billion people, by the way, I'm going to do my best Bob voice. Uh, I hope that some of the money. Maybe they can just uh, take a little bit of it, maybe, you know, uh, one or two million, maybe, you know, and, uh, uh, and use it, say, to, uh, to pay the mortgages on, a, on some of the farms and, and the farmers here uh, at the owe to the banks. Um, apparently, this pissed Bob Geldof off, but uh, it lit a light bulb over Willie Nelson's head. And he thought, you know what? Dylan's got a good idea. And then he, uh, uh, in, along with John Mellencamp and Neil Young, they formed Farm Aid. In, and they had the first Farm Aid, I believe, was in yeah, September 22nd in Champaign, Illinois at the Memorial Stadium. Yes, which, you know, I mean, it was in that uh, wonderful cornfield bastion of Champaign, Illinois. Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a big college town. So the University of Illinois is. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm saying, I mean, I'm only goofing on that because you would have thought it would have been more in sort of a cow town. Uh, you know, so one town over from the University of Illinois, but, uh, I will say this, uh, so Live Aid was on July 13th, 1985, uh, Farm Aid, uh, in Illinois was on September 22nd, 1985. So this gave them a little over two months to put together uh, a bill and they did a really pretty damn good job of it. Uh, 
look, and it was kind of a weird uh, cross section. Obviously, we said Neil Young, who was in the middle of promoting his worst album called Old Days. <laughs> Uh, I think by far his worst record. It's just basically a cynical country, like, you know, down, down home, you know, corn poke, uh, straw hat kind of stuff. It's actually pretty insulting. But anyway, so who else was on this? Johnny and Edgar Winter, uh, Foreigner, Sammy Hagar, who ostensibly we believe did not drive 55 on the stage. <laughs> uh, Don Henley. Uh, who, you know, I mean, hey, anything that could be self-serious back in the 80s, Don Henley was probably there. Uh, Ry Cooter, hey, actually, they got somebody pretty good. Uh, the Beach Boys, hey, you know, Mike Love, shameless motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's going to be there. The Charlie Daniels Band. Go find the footage of The Devil Went Down to Georgia from Farm Aid. That guy rocked. You know, say <laughs> what you want. Say what you want about the politics of his son. You ever want to follow a horrible Twitter feed, a, a, a humorously horrible Twitter feed. His son runs a uh, Twitter feed for the Charlie Daniels uh, estate. Uh, John Denver was there. Hold on to that name. We'll come back to him in a little bit. And then others you would expect, you know, Kenny Rogers, Johnny Cash, you know, all of those folks, Chris Christopherson. So actual country people on an actual, well, you know, kind of country uh, designed show. Uh, one thing to note, so this was the beginning uh, of the awareness of the plight of the family farmer. At the time, like you said, there was the predatory mortgage thing of trying to seize the land so that they could go big ag. Uh, yeah. And it, this was sort of the beginning of the factory farming uh, outgrowth, which if you ever want to be scared, uh, go see some of that uh, footage. Um, and you'll see what exactly is getting in your meat. Uh, steroids and shit uh, basically is getting in your in your food, uh, mm, but but they still taste good. Oh yeah, you know I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll eat that McDonald's burger every day of the week. But here's the thing: back then it was predatory mortgaging. Now it's predatory patenting and licensing. Uh, mm. Basically, Monsanto, uh, with its GMO uh, techniques, has uh, basically cornered the market on seeds which was a very essential part of the small business agriculture, agribusiness world. Well, now these seed dealers can't, uh, can't do it or, you know, they tried to do that. Uh, Monsanto came up with these GMO seeds and they basically forced folks to buy these seeds. You know, either you get this price or, you know, the, basically they played hardball and they put all these seed dealers out of business. So, in 36 years, it was a nightmare back then. Now it's a real nightmare, and uh, it's one of the more uh, nefarious uh, things in the country. That farm aid is still held every year uh, in different places. And, and, and that's the thing I want to get to. I noticed, I'm looking at it, almost every, not every single year, there, were, uh, nine, there, were, there was no farm aid in 91, and there was no farm aid in 1988. But uh, from 1992 onward, there's been a farm aid every single year up until 2020, which of course no, they didn't happen because of the coronavirus. But they did do it. They did do it uh, virtually from people people's homes. You know, they did it through through YouTube. You know, yeah. Um, but anyway, the fact that since 1985 there's still a need for farm aid and they still do farm aid every single year. Yeah, it's pretty damning. 
that's pretty tells you how bad it is for farmers. You know? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's I mean the, you know farmers it's it's a tragedy. It's a bona fide uh, tragedy. And look, Mellencamp and Nelson and whoever has taken up the mantle uh, since then, uh, God bless them for continuing to uh, fight the uh, good, almost impossible fight. Uh, but you know here we are. I mean we haven't had another Live Aid, and and look they. Uh, we just got a kind of sort of half-assed effective vaccine for malaria. So things have gotten better in Africa, so we don't need to worry about that. Farmers, no such luck. Yeah. Next, uh, less bad news and more on a, for, for, for a comical perspective of September 1985. And this indeed was comical. The PMRC. What does PMRC stand for, Chris? It is the Parents Music Resource Center. Yeah. In other words... Dumb soccer moms have nothing else better to do. <laughs> well, hey, 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 I'll be careful there because two of the co-founders were Tipper Gore, yeah, uh, Al Gore's wife, yeah, and Susan Baker, who was the wife of Jim Baker, otherwise known probably as the grand pooba of the Illuminati. Yeah, uh, you know, the old Secretary of State under Bush. Yeah. Uh, so these these were not dumb women uh, in uh, most aspects of their life, except you know, rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they want to put warning stickers on. By now in 2021, putting warning stickers on an album sleeve, A, is not that big of a deal because the, the kids are still going to hear the bad words. And B, no one buys albums anymore, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with music streaming, the PMRC thing is, is, is useless. It's ir- ir- irrelevant. But back in 1985, when people were transitioning from LPs to CDs, it was. And uh, there was a hearing before Congress over whether um, the federal government should force record labels to put uh, warning stickers on albums. Of course, several artists, musical artists, thought it was a uh, um, it was a, a blockage of free speech. And um, yeah, like we, like I mentioned earlier, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, John Denver and Frank Zappa never were heard in the same sentence again, except for this time. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll get into this in a second, but uh, be assured they were all on the same side. You know, John yeah. Denver had a little bit of a milk toast image, but man, yeah, he was a he was a champion for uh, for the speech and uh, artists' freedom. So yeah, this whole thing uh, basically this was around the time again where you started to get artists that were pushing the envelope, and it was becoming more of a permissive culture as far as language. You know, you got to remember. Uh, George Carlin with his seven dirty uh, uh, words. And it said stand-up comedians and then folks like Frank Zappa. And, you know, you had the British metal act uh, and some additional. And, 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 and the dawning of Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. You kind of <laughs> had that at the beginning, but, but more seriously, I mean, this, you got the context here, a couple years earlier, a uh, couple of troubled uh, teenagers or uh, young adults in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, they, uh, decided to commit suicide with a shotgun, or in one case, one guy tried to do it and blew off three quarters of his face and died like three <laughs> months later. Uh, but they were listening to uh, "Stay in Class," I believe, by Judas Priest, which of course got Judas Priest sued. Uh, and so there was this feeling that the music was was doing the uh, was doing the harm. And so, obviously, Tipper Gore, uh, Susan Baker, uh, and some of these politicians uh, seized on this. And uh, just like it was in the mid-50s, 
uh, it was the evils of rock and roll, and as uh, Frank Sinatra once called them, the Cretinous goons uh, were were coming back. Uh, I happened to uh, to do a lot of research on this earlier in my life, and so I know a lot about this issue. So about the PMRC, a couple of uh, interesting things to note. One of their co-funders and backers was Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Uh, that's the second time we've mentioned him. Uh, one of rock's great assholes, uh, that kind of proves it. Uh, they also had this ridiculous thing and this kind of sets up the hearing. The hearing was on in Congress, uh, in, in the Senate was on September 19th, 1985. Now let's get into the hearing and, you know, this will be a little bit long, but I think this is worth uh, talking about and just sort of ruminating on. And this is, uh, the passion here is kind of extraordinary, but the backdrop is ridiculous. I mean, this became a total circus. And, you know, John Danforth, who was a senator from Missouri, is like, now let's not make this into a circus, folks. And then, of course, it they degenerates. Did. <laughs> so now uh, in one, in a surreal moment, and if you do a Google search, you can find this video. Uh, senator Paula Hawkins of Florida, as part of, you know, entering evidence or whatever into this hearing, uh, there's one of those old school, you know, like kind of twisty dial, like 13 inch Zenith type TVs. She decides that Van Halen's Hot for Teacher, that video, is the perfect example of something that's having an undue influence, uh, evil influence on children. Hmm. Give me a break. Uh, if you remember the video, uh, yeah, Wal- you know, Waldo and a bunch of dancing women, but so what? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's just indicative of the kind of stuff that was going on. And you didn't really have artists uh, in support of this. But then the artists came and then, boy, did the fire come. So I'm going to read three excerpts from the star witnesses. Uh, D. Snyder of Twisted Sister, uh, who came in. Uh, I think somebody told him, forgot to tell him when you go to Congress, maybe you should dress up comes in in his jean, uh, jean, uh, denim vest with the big hair and the aviator shades and the big dangly earrings and the whole thing. Okay. Nice. But, but then he sits down and he actually is the most articulate and direct lawyerly guy of the bunch. Tells him that he's a 30-year-old Christian that has a three-year-old son, blah, 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 and this is not what he does. And then he goes through the specifics of how uh, he was attacked. Uh, this one is jaw-dropping. Uh, so he says there was accusation number one, as he called it. This attack was contained in an article written by Tipper Gore, which was given the forum of a full page in my hometown newspaper on Long Island. In this article, Ms. Gore claimed that one of my songs, Under the Blade, had lyrics encouraging sadomasochism, bondage, and rape. The lyrics she quoted have absolutely nothing to do with these topics. On the contrary, the words and questions are about surgery and the fear that it instills in people. Furthermore, the reader of this article is led to believe that the three lines she quotes go together in the song when, as you can see from reading the lyrics, the first two lines she cites are an edited phrase from the second verse, and the third line is a misquote of a line from the chorus. That the writer could misquote me is curious, since we make it a point to print all of our lyrics on the inner sleeve of every album. As a creator of Under the Blade, I can categorically say that the only sadomasochism, bondage, and rape in this song is in the mind of Ms. Gore. <laughs> nice. So, so that's great, and it gets better. This is John Denver's take. This is part. This is a part uh, of his testimony. I've had, in my experience, two encounters with the, two encounters with this sort of censorship. 
My song, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from many radio stations as a drug-related song. This was obviously done by people who had never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and had also never experienced the elation, the celebration of life, or the joy in living that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the Persades meteor shower on a moonless and cloudless, cloudless night when there are so many stars that you have a shadow from the starlight and you're out camping with your friends, your best friends, and introducing them to one of nature's most spectacular light shows for the very first time. And, Obvious, smoking, and smoking pot. Probably. <laughs> Obviously, a clear, smake, a, a clear case of misinterpretation. Mr. Chairman, what assurance have I that any national panel to review my music would make any better judgment? And then he also says this, which I thought was smart. To my knowledge, my movie, Oh God, was not banned in any theaters. However, some newspapers refused to print our advertisements, and some theaters refused to put the name of the film on the marquee. I don't believe we were using the name of the Lord, our, our Lord, in vain. Quite the opposite. We were making a small effort to spread his message that we are here for each other and not against each other. And now the uh, the main event, which was Frank Zappa in his brilliant irreverence and uh, wit, but also his passion outside of his music. This was probably his finest moment. Uh, I would love to read the whole thing, but you would probably turn us off if I did because it would take too long. Anyway. Here's part of it. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years, dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent in the proposal's design. It is my understanding that in law, First Amendment issues are decided with a preference for the least restrictive alternative. In this context, the PMRC's demands are the equivalent of treating dandruff by decapitation. <laughs> no one has yeah. forced Mrs. Baker or Mrs. Gore to bring Prince or Sheena Easton into their homes. Thanks to the Constitution, they are free to buy other forms of music for their children. Apparently, they insist on purchasing the works of contemporary recording artists in order to support a personal illusion of aerobic sophistication. Ladies, please be advised. The $8.98 purchase price does not entitle you to a kiss on the foot from the composer or performer in exchange for a spin on the family Victrola. Taken as a whole, the complete list of PMRC demands reads like an instruction manual for some sinister kind of toilet training program to housebreak all composers and performers because of the lyrics of a few. Ladies, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, he pretty much laid the smack down there. <laughs> yeah, and so it's interesting talking. So this is uh, the finest moment, I guess, for the defense of rock when those three guys can come together. Now, obviously, the legacy of the PMRC is that, yes, the RIAA did introduce, uh, you know, those, those black and white decals that we used to see. Yeah. On the bottom right corner of CDs, that's the PMRC's fault. Uh, culminated five years took, I think, it took until about like the two live crew uh, year. And yeah. my, my understanding is the first album to go number one with that sticker on it was Efo Four Zagan by NWA, which is which is great because they intentionally made that record as filthy and as uh, uh, unlistenable as possible as a fuck <laughs> you to George Bush. Moving yeah. on, we go from. Uh, 
from the serious uh, polemics of rock and roll to just serious, awesome power pop. Uh, yeah. Rock and, roll. and this is number four. And the number four moment we have here is Husker Du goes to a major label. Now, um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, indie bands crossed over to major labels all the time. And, you know, there was there was always a lot of flack when certain bands did it. But in 1985, Husker Du were the first of the major American indie underground bands to actually go willingly to a major label. Um, Husker Du, we've talked about them before on this podcast. Um, Husker Du are one of the greatest... You know, yeah, okay, they're one of the the big name underground alternative slash indie American bands of the 1980s. Fuck that. They're one of the best American bands of the 80s, period, yes. uh, in my opinion. And one of the more influential, too. Um, without them, there's no punk pop. Without them, like, they really laid the template for both Nirvana and Green Day, which is saying a lot. Yeah. Um, um, but anyway, this band, Husker Du, they started out as a super badass hardcore speed punk band and they later changed their sound to very melodic almost poppy but still aggressive uh pop punk and uh in 1985 they released two albums uh um new day rising which is a classic that was their last album for uh, the independent label sst which is uh started and owned by greg ginn the guitarist yep. and leader of black flag and uh they were the biggest selling band on the SST label. That being said, selling a lot of labels on SST really didn't mean much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You're still not selling that many records. However, they were a huge live draw and uh, um, they sold out every club they played in, whether it's every, yeah. every 500 to 1000 capacity club they played in, they sold out. And, uh, uh, and, they, they, and they, they were known for their live shows too. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, they were kind of like the who. They were like the hardcore punk version of the Who, in a yep. lot of ways. Um, and anyway, uh, they got sick of not selling records. So around the same time, the Replacements crossed over to major label. Husker Du did as well. But with the Replacements, it was expected because the Replacements were basically a boogie woogie rock and roll band, you know, in the underground circuit. Everyone knew that. But with Husker Du, they were a genuine punk rock band. And uh, when they crossed over, it really raised eyebrows. And it kind of started a wave of indie underground bands starting to, you know what, fuck this, I want to make money. <laughs> Let's go to a major label. And they went there in 1985. So that's why it's an important part, because it kind of started the wave of indie or planted the seeds for indie and un underground bands. And you know what? Maybe it's not such a bad idea to go to a major label. If Husker Du can do it, we can do it. Yep. And, and yeah, and this is kind of what started it all. The album that resulted in it, ironically enough, Flip Your Wig, is a really good record. Came out the same year as, as New Day Rising came out. Nowhere near as good as New Day Rising. It's pretty clear they, the, 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 the Flip Your Wig songs were like uh, the, the leftovers. <laughs> it sounds like they were the leftovers from New Day Rising. Yeah. Still, and still, a, still a good album, but, you know. Right. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, I mean, when you when you get on a major label at that time because uh, in a way like you said them and the replacements are the standard bearers for the underground and uh there was an incentive perhaps to play it a little safe well before you say standard bears they were 
the the second level standard bearers. The number one standard bearers back then was REM. Well, yeah, no shit. Yeah, REM. What what I mean though is like some of these like real sort of you know uh, DIY sort of club uh, bands that were doing it for you know SST and yeah. uh, some of those underground labels. Yeah, R- without REM, those guys don't 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 get their push. That is Ironic- clear. I- I- ironically enough, they got to the majors before REM did. <laughs> yes, they did. And uh, if I remember right, uh, REM didn't get to the majors until Green, correct? Yeah, that was, yeah, it was when Document went big. After that, they jumped. You know? Gotcha. But yeah, without REM's success and without com- them kind of setting the roadmap for how to do it, uh, the replacements and uh, uh, Husker, Husker Du don't do. get there. So my, my whole thought is, yeah, I mean, you're right. The SST records by Husker Du are amazing. Uh, flip Your Wig, not so much. And my thought is, is that maybe they were playing it safe because they yeah. wanted to make sure that they kept that uh, yeah. that status. It was it was a real risk. Even back then, uh, you know, you had to kind of show, you know, it's like show me the money. You know, right. you had to prove that you were uh, you were viable. So, like you said, it was uh, it really did sort of carve the path. Uh, you know, Husker doing the replacements were out first. And then, you know, the, the ball rolls downhill, you know, you get those sonic, sonic youths and the Janet Jane's addictions and, yeah. uh, some of, and it all leads, you know, the pixies, um, and it all like leads and it all culminates in that golden period there, 91 to 94, you know, you get the Nirvanas and, uh, you know, and bands like that, you know, the Pearl Jams and, you know, these folks that. Uh, although to be fair, Pearl Jam started on a major label. Soundgarden's a better example. Screaming yeah. Trees, you know these yeah. bands that like graduated there in the Seattle bands, basically Mudhoney. Yeah, you know and they all got their run on uh, the major labels. Uh, Husker Du kind of made that possible. You know we've made the joke before. It's it's uh, bears repeating because again it'll never not be true. Dave Grohl probably should give about twenty five percent of his royalties to Pop Mold. Fuck, because... fuck that, 75%. <laughs> Everything Foo Fighters does sounds like a clean, major, clean corporate radio version of what Husker Du did, but not as good. So, now, num- number five uh, uh, reason why September 1985 uh, is so fascinating. Money for Nothing by Dire Straits from their huge album, Brothers in Arms, hits number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, and this song is one of those songs that was number one, but it was also a bit controversial because there's a lyric, you know, uh, where, uh, where, uh, Mark Knopfler is singing, uh, um, uh, that little faggot with the earring and the mink coat, you know, look at him, get those girls. What people don't, didn't understand is that Mark Knopfler was pulling a Randy Newman when he wrote that song. Oh, I know. I say pulling a Randy Newman means writing in character. Yes. Writing from the perspective of the character that you're writing about. It does not mean you are that character. It means you're making an observation. It's probably a character that he knew. And he's writing from that person's perspective. It doesn't mean the writer has those same views. And a lot right. of people are stupid and don't fucking get that. That's what writing in character is all about. Yeah. I mean, for example, Hollywood screenwriters, when they have movies, where they have, when you have a, a, a movies take place that take place in the 40s and 50s and you have guys uh, insulting black people saying the n-word it doesn't mean the script writer is a racist he's writing for the character yes <laughs> that's that's what that's what mark knopfler was doing here yes idiots and, idiots yes and uh yeah that gets into a i mean that's a different take on on what i was going to say uh in the sense that to me 
yes, Knopfler, you know, the story is, is kind of famous that uh, Knopfler claims that he was in a Sears or a Kmart or something, and he overheard these two guys that worked there that were kind of the, uh, you know, they were the guys that lugged in the stuff and set it all yeah. up and had to, you know, had to do the deliveries and, you know, like load the docks and all that. And he heard them bitching about guys like him that were up there doing the fabulous rock and roll thing. So the idea is, uh, you know, they're getting, they're getting all the glory and, you know, look at all these yahoos up there while we have to sit here busting our asses. And so I always wondered, he got a song out of that. What was he goofing on? Was he goof? Was it kind of goofing on himself? Uh, and so, you know, you know, let's, let's get a celebration of just how ridiculous we are in these people's eyes. Was it satire or was he kind of like, you know, like the Cohen brothers would do? Is it, you know, you question, is it a lark? Are they really insulting these guys? Are they looking down on these guys and saying, okay, so this is kind of nothing. And so what we'll do is we'll get a celebration of this kind of, of, of idle uh, pitching. Uh, the, I will say this. Can you name a number, another number one song that used the word faggot? <laughs> I can't. Maybe, there's probably some hip hop songs there that did. No, actually, you know, I don't even remember that. And if they did, they wouldn't get on the air. Yes. Have there been, you know, I mean, homophobia and misogyny and, you know, this idea of sissy guys. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, come on, like pretty fly for a white guy is pretty much, yeah. you know, that that's kind of a, a sly gay joke too. But the thing here is this is another one of those instances where we were just talking about with, with money for nothing. Uh, one, uh, the people listening to the radio today, they wouldn't get the satire or they wouldn't get the joke, yeah. uh, which gets, you know, kind of meta. Uh, but they also, obviously you couldn't get away with that. And I understand, you know, like, you know, Prince, I'm sure, like these guys, I'm sure there were like millions of people that were saying that same thing uh, yeah. about Prince. But yeah. yeah, you definitely you definitely couldn't get away uh, uh, with that uh, today. A uh, couple other things about uh, the, this song. Uh, I love it. It's it's a perfect song to me. So catchy, so energetic, uh, so possessive of that era's attitude and aesthetic. Um, and again, it's so exemplary and such an earworm and so awesomely well done that, yeah, you, he gets away with some of that shit to this day, like classic rock will still play that song. They don't bleep out faggot, mm. you know, which maybe they should at this point because of hurt feelings. Yeah. I've yeah. never heard it bleeped out in yeah. all the years that it's been on. Uh, why? Because again, it's, it's a basically a perfect pop song and look Knopfler uh you know like this is the uh this is the Sultan of Swing that just you know decides to just crank it up and he finds that riff and then remember that song also gets very meta and it's clever uh Sting sneaks in there yeah yeah Sting Sting sings the I want my MTV part yes which is very much a high concept meta joke because if anybody was embodying the spirit of I want my MTV at the time, it was Sting. Yeah. And so a lot of this is kind of uh, this is basically it's kind of self-effacing stuff that that they're kind of doing this. They're kind of goofing on themselves. It's like, OK, so how do people think about guys like me that are up there uh, that are up there rocking out um, and just a, a, a random thing? God bless Mark Knopfler for rocking the pink headbands because <laughs> that's yeah. about as 80s as it gets.
On this episode, Chris and I did an overview of the strange, fascinating, and oddly resonant month of September 1985. One of the major events of that month was Michael Jackson purchasing the entire Beatles publishing catalog. Well, we have more Michael coming at you for our next episode, and more Prince as well. That can only mean, yes, the classic, award-winning, million-listener series returns, Prince versus Michael Jackson, Chapter 4. 1991 to 1999. Prince changes his name to a symbol, and we'll find out why. In addition, the insanely prolific genius becomes even more prolific, staying true to his vision even as his commercial success wanes. Michael Jackson is not immune from the changing times and changing tastes either, but was his music at this time really any good? Plus, his personal life becomes a circus sideshow worthy of tabloid headlines and mostly to a detrimental effect to poor Michael. Listen in as the epic saga continues. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Okay, now we, we continue. We got five more points to go as to why September 1985 was uh, such a unique, interesting time in the history of rock. And the next point, I guess, would be point number six. And this involves everybody's favorite former hippie rock band from the 1960s. They were once called Jefferson Airplane. They changed their name in the 70s to Jefferson Starship. They got worse and worse and worse. And they reached the nadir <laughs> of, their, yeah. of, of their... Or the peak, if you're a populist... And in September of 85, they unleash We Built This City on an unsuspecting world. Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> uh, and so story here. Uh, well, first off, I think it was like took about four or five guys to actually write this song. <laughs> it took four people to write a song this bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And well, it depends on your perspective. So uh, at this point. So Jefferson Starship around this time, uh, and it wasn't this album. I think it was a little bit later on. They, uh, I guess they uh, embarrassed Jefferson so much that Jefferson took his name. Oh, th that was a that was a Paul Kantner thing. Uh, yeah. So Paul Kantner took the Jefferson with him. So they eventually just became Starship. Yeah. So uh, they they come out with with this, and obviously they were searching for a hit. And they found this thing, and it's an earworm that we can't escape. To this day, you can still go into most grocery stores, uh, maybe on a given Tuesday. You will hear, we built the city. Uh, we don't have to really, you know, you know we built the city. Your mom knows we built the city. Your <laughs> grandmother, provided that she's still kicking, knows we built the city. Uh, became uh, this huge hit and is generally considered uh, the worst song of all time by, you know, rock aficionados, dare I say, snobs like us, uh, to the point of uh, about five years ago, Rob Tannenbaum, who's a wonderful writer and reporter. Uh, I actually worked for him a few times as a freelancer. Uh, good dude. He published an oral history 
of uh, We Built This City uh, in uh, GQ. And so Jefferson Starship was badly in need of a hit at this point. They had gone for a while. And so there became uh, this process where the producers get in touch with uh, some song doctors. This thing gets passed around. And uh, here we come up with Built This City. Now, a lot of this I will base on uh, Tannenbaum's article. So we're just quoting, quoting from this. Uh, Mickey Thomas, who was uh, Jefferson Starship's uh, lead singer uh, after Marty Balin uh, left the group, uh, quoting from this, he says, I joined Jefferson Starship in 1979, which was one of the pivotal points of reinventing the band. I wasn't exactly a Starship fan. I came out of soul music. There were always different members coming and going, so the band was constantly evolving. I shaved my mustache. We were, okay, That's this counts as reinventing ourselves. Uh, so I wanted to reinvent my personal look as well. The music itself was a huge gamble. Uh, okay. Uh, so this actually started off, Bernie Taupin was involved in this. Strange but true. Elton John's writer, he actually took the first stab at the lyrics. And so that is where it started. Uh, went down the line. Uh, uh, Bernie Taupin uh, himself, uh, he was saying that the original song was a very dark song about how club life in L.A. was being killed off and live acts had no place to go. So, of course, this was uh, supposed to be a, uh, a uh, L.A. Uh, love song. And apparently, once it went uh, from there, uh, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, Grace Slick at this point, for her, uh, for her uh, sake, says, I was such an asshole for a while. I was trying to make up for it by being sober, uh, which I was all during the 80s, which is a bizarre decade to be sober in. <laughs> uh, so I was trying to make it. Grace, Grace Slick has always been a great interview. She gives great interviews. Oh, yeah. She's, 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 she's very bright. And she says, so I was trying to make up to the band by being a good girl. Here we're going to sing this song. We built the city on rock and roll. Oh, you're shitting me. That's the worst song ever. So even <laughs> she thought the worst song ever. And then, of course, later on in this article, her bandmates were like, yeah, whatever. She was like totally on board because she wanted to make a shitload of money. Uh, you know, so again, so, you know, say what she wants now. But uh, it treated uh, treated her well. So, you know, we get down the line and it gets out there. Now, everybody probably knows uh, this song, and it actually was written by Bernie Taupin, which is Marconi Plays the Mamba. Uh, mm, which Jesus. Is like, what the fuck does that mean? And, you know, that that that's in the chorus. Uh, you know, Marconi, <laughs> Marconi was like, okay, so the idea is Marconi, I think, was like the first European composer whose music actually took uh, hold uh, in America. So right. apparently Marconi built Los Angeles, which is fucking absurd. <laughs> so, you, yeah. yeah, so you can talk about uh, all of this. But point being is, so they released Knee Deep in the Hoopla, which is obviously is a line from that song. And this uh, song comes out. Maybe it was just supposed to be a you know kind of a kitschy thing to say, hey, look, Grace Slick lives. And it exploded and became yeah. like this huge hit. Uh, so, uh, it actually did end up on a blender list of the worst songs of all time. Uh, here's a quote from one of the band members. 
Uh, the number three song on that blender list was Everybody Have Fun Tonight by Wang Chung. Oh, which, I remember that song. <laughs> yeah, which, which Peter Wolf produced. Peter Wolf, not that Peter Wolf, was the guy who produced the song. Yeah. I called him and said, dude, I'm on one of the worst songs ever, but you're on two. That's awesome. And, and, and speaking of turds, <laughs> the next reason why 1985, in September of 1985, is so fascinating. And yes, uh, unfortunately, we have to talk about her. Um, Kate Bush releases Hounds of Love. Now, if you are a longtime curmudgeon rock report listener, um, on our second or third episode, we went into uh, albums about uh, um, artists that are uh, you know, uh, sacred cows that need to be put out to pasture. And one of them for me was Kate Bush, um, one of the most critically overrated artists or music artists that who's ever come out of the UK. Um, in a nutshell, I just, you know, I find her upper middle class classical music and ballet affectations really annoying and insulting. Um, yeah. it, it's just, it, it's, it's just, it's way too, uh, how do I say is histrionic a word? Well, she's definitely, she definitely is solipsistic. Um, yeah, but, solipsistic, but I mean, it's not histrionic. It's definitely dramatic, but it's um, self-serious. A little way too self-serious. And I, I, I've never liked her voice. I never much cared for her lyrics. I think her lyrics are just, just too much fairy tale, whisper in the wind shit. Yeah. Bullshit, I should say. Too much fairy tale nonsense. However, this month... And this year is important because Hounds of Love is really her one good album. The one album where she actually decides to like, you know, not be Kate Bush and do <laughs> some do something musically interesting for a change. And yeah. she does. It's her one good album. And it's basically the album where her reputation is based on. And, yeah. Uh, this, this is the album where people started taking Kate Bush seriously. Yes. And I admit it's good. And after this album, she went back to sucking. So. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And again, this album, uh, three words, British as fuck. Uh, yeah. For, for this period, <laughs> it's got that production. It's got the echo. It's got the uh, it's got the sort of the drum machine-y uh, kind of thing going on, which actually surprisingly goes pretty well with that. Oh, you know, she was like, uh, yeah. you know, you know, if if Tarzan was a woman, uh, maybe he was Kate Bush. Um, so, so, you know what I mean? Kate Bush probably did do a video like that where she was in a, in a Tarzan outfit with some gorillas knowing her. Yeah. yeah. She she did all kind of wacky videos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, she, she was an artiste artiste, but look, there, there is actually some sweet stuff on this record. It's yeah. There's um, some good stuff on this record. Yeah. There's songs about empowerment and, you know, there's love. There's a, a wonderful lyric on this album, uh, you know, that stuck with me for years. Uh, Every time it rains, you're here in my head. Uh, that's, you know, again, you know, depending on your perspective, I've always thought that that was profound because that's kind of, you know, me already. I'm a hopeless romantic, and I'm kind, I'm kind of corny when it comes down to it. So now we move from the self-serious Brits to clearly just a bunch of brats yes and we're talking about the movie saint elmo's fire which contains a group of young actors at the time who all appeared in the same movies at the set together and usually directed by john hughes for example the breakfast club uh pretty in pink blah 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 however saint elmo's fire directed by joel schumacher and most of what, what came out of this movie even though it was it was you know 
successful, successful in the box office, not a box office smash, but it was the song, the song that came out of that uh, by Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, which became a number one hit in many countries, not just in the U.S. I think it went number one in the U.K. too. I'm not exactly sure. I got to look it up. Yep. But it was a gigantic smash hit. Yes. And this song still echoes many decades later. Yes. How, and how? I don't know. I don't even think it's that good of a song. Yeah, it's become, it's basically, it's like iconic slash ironic uh, that it still shows up in commercials. Uh, it still hasn't died from some uh, radio formats. You still hear it. Not necessarily a classic rock, but, you know, like top 40 radio sometimes will do uh, sort of throwbacks. And, and that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, by the way, it was a guy named John Parr that that wrote uh, uh, and and sung St. Elmo's Fire. And right. I can understand why you confuse him because Simple Minds was uh, Don't You Think About Me, oh. or, you know, and uh, which is the other national anthem for the Brat, uh, Brat Pack. I would argue that this is the primary one. Yeah. And the reason we're bringing this up is that this was uh, September's other number one hit uh, mm. on the Billboard uh, charts. The first one was Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, or actually that was the second one. Before, Right before that was John Parr's St. Elmo's Fire, uh, mm. which all I remember is it's a terribly awkward uh, rumbling beat. It's got weird keyboards and this sort of triumphant horn keyboard thing which uh really sounds like it belonged in rocky four uh, <laughs> which, which has a wonderfully terrible but uh, iconic soundtrack itself uh and then you've got john parr uh who was basically a two-hit wonder the year before he had a song called naughty naughty which yeah. was all over mtv and then he comes back and does san elmo's fire uh, John Parr, the only memory I have of him, one, he has a uh, voice that sounds like he was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day while eating three bags of Tostitos a day. Uh, <laughs> it, it was raspy and yeah. it was, like, ah, you know, it was it was a growl. But he also had yeah. like possibly the best mullet. Uh, <laughs> he he mulleted the country guys. Uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> And so saying almost fire, it's worth bringing up because it is basically when you think of that, it is the most associated uh, song with the Brat Pack for good reason. St. Elmo's Fire, which is not a great movie. It's one of these. Uh, hey, we're a bunch of young adults trying to figure out how to get how to find our asses with both hands. And they all live in a neighborhood in Chicago, all hang out in the same bars and they all date each other. And look, they were all in it. Andrew McCarthy to me more. Uh, Judd Nelson, I believe, was in it. Um, and em Emilio Estevez, was he in it? I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, basically, if if you were a high-profile brat in Hollywood, chances are you were somewhere in that movie. It was uh, it was basically the super friends of the Brat Pack movies. Uh, mm. You know, they all they all came together. Uh, it was a real shit bomb. Uh, really, again, two legacies of the movie were this song, and it really is what it was kind of the first visibility uh, afforded to Demi Moore. She was kind of the um, the new kid on the block, so to speak, uh, there, and then that's where she kind of uh, took off. But yeah, we got to talk about Sudden Almost Fire, because again, 1985, 1984, uh, you know, John Hughes kind of defined the aesthetic with his movies, but then it took off, and 
the brats eventually grew up and then they all had their issues. You know, some of them had drug issues. Uh, you know, Rob Lowe, God bless him. Uh, sex tapes. Uh, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, good, good, good boy, Rob. Good boy. Uh, other than that, uh, got to give it some love. And it'll forever uh, be an earworm that we just can't escape. And that leads us from one earworm to, in my opinion, another earworm um, from something that aspired to the serious, but really kind of flopped to something that's an artist who's one of the most well-respected artists of all time in the rock pop genre. And this is Tom Waits. Now, where does Tom Waits come into this? We talked about Starship and St. Elmo's Fire and Simple Minds and all this crap. Where does Tom Waits fall in? I'll tell you where Tom Waits falls in. In September of 1985, he released the album Rain Dogs. Now, up until 1985, Waits was a well-respected singer-songwriter um, who had just entered into a weird phase in his career. Okay. Now in the year 2021, Tom Waits is a living legend, an American treasure, and one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time and one of the most singular unique musical stylists who ever lived. Um uh revered by people from any from everyone from Bob Dylan who once said that Tom Waits is one of his heroes. When Dylan says you're one of his heroes, that's yeah. saying something. Yeah, I was going to say, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, Springsteen has shown his admiration. Neil Young likes Tom Waits. Everyone loves Tom Waits. Tom Waits is an icon. Um, and the album he released in September 1985, Rain Dogs, was and is part of his weirdo Berlin trilogy, along with 1983's Swordfish Trombone and 1987's Frank's Wild Years. But this is the album that stands out because it is his greatest work. This is his coup de grace. This is the masterpiece that Tom Waits will. This is the feather in his cap when he eventually gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is another one that isn't, I don't think is and should be. Um, this is the first album that comes to mind. This is the masterpiece. This is the album that merged the you know the 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 cocktail lounge piano lizard beatnik lizard of the 70s um and what i prefer you know the weirdo you know um avant-garde piano and weird drum arrange weird rhythm tracks and weird yeah basically and, and, yet, and yet beautiful songs and these beautiful melodies and weird but beautiful and these amazing lyrics Rain Dogs brings it all together in a way that none of his albums afterward did. This is the one that came out in September 85. Yeah, and uh, this is his, uh, I guess he had discovered the German composers, you know, the Kurt Viles and the Berhold Brex. And... Oh, 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 he did that before with Swordfish Trombone. Right, yeah. and yeah, again, this yeah. is that same period. Uh, and so, but he but he upped his game in Rain Dogs, and he's just really yeah. on. And so you get those, uh, you get those uh, ballads. Uh, on there with he, he's got that oddly uh, weird kind of grumbly but beautiful voice that he could really yeah. uh, get yeah. some, get some mileage out of that uh, big black Mariah which is just yeah. this rollicking song and again there's those arrangements where the the bass and the drums don't necessarily know they're in the same song uh, yeah. and you know yeah. the, sort of the off kilter the the instruments uh, like New Orleans dirges. 
uh, yeah. is a style that gets in there. And so it's like this, this jazz, uh, almost uh, like chamber music, uh, kind of blues, uh, I don't know what you would you would call it, but it, and it's like I, I, said, I, I, I would call it a mongrel ver, a mongrel hybrid of blues and jazz with avant garde rhythms and uh, uh, um, what would I call it? Lots of uh, just just original, like like innovative percussion that you'd never you've never heard before. Oh you know? yeah, I mean, like I said, the the drum stuff on this thing is incredible, and again, it's just. Uh, you know, Tom Waits just he he had a mind, and uh, you know his. And it didn't work like yours. It didn't work like mine. It didn't work like anybody's. And yeah. well, like I said, so you know, started with Swordfish Trombones, reached its peak uh, with uh, Rain Dogs, and then Frank's Wild Years. Uh, not quite as good, but uh, honestly, I would put this album was one of the top one hundred albums ever made. I think yeah. it, abs- it absolutely belongs uh, up there. Uh, because he kind of maintains the aesthetic while mixing up the songs. And so, you know, beautiful ballads, uh, rockers, uh, kind of almost like uh, bebop, you know, like what would you call it? Like kind of fast, jazzy kind of stuff, like upright bass yeah. and sure. uh, this other kinds of stuff. So it's just real, uh, real variety, but he, uh, he, he pulls it off. The number, the number ten reason why uh, 1985 in the month of September was such a unique, weird, interesting year. Michael Jackson comes back and does something naughty. <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty, well, I mean, well, I don't know compared to how naughty he got. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. So, okay, so we've talked about there's a few kind of monumental, like like news stories or. Uh, happenings and it wasn't just about the music. Uh, so, you know, you had farm aid and, and, uh, the parents, uh, music resource center and, uh, all of these things. Well, one of the other important of these pivot moments happened to, uh, when Michael Jackson, uh, bought the Beatles publishing catalog for 47 and a half million dollars, which even back then was a shitload of money. Uh, now, there's a story behind this. Now, Paul McCartney and, and Jackson, when Jackson was in his ambition phase in the 70s, uh, became friendly. And they had this sort of uh, on and off again, not partnership, but kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of tipping their cap to one another. They did a couple of uh, duets together uh, in the 80s. In uh, 79, uh, Michael Jackson covered Wings Girlfriend, uh, which... Yeah, Michael Jackson's hand actually became a pretty good song. Holy shit. Uh, yeah. So they became chummy. And, you know, these are two of the more ambitious, savvy guys in the history of rock and roll. Uh, there's a reason that they both basically became billionaires uh, because they're smart and they're ruthless. So I guess in a conversation, McCartney gives some advice to Michael and say, hey, you know, the real money lies in publishing. You know, if you want to if you want to make some money. You know, if you own publishing rights and you build that as an investment, uh, the returns will be maybe astronomical. So make sure you own your catalog and go out there and shop. Well, that would come back to haunt Paul because the Beatles publishing catalog came up for auction or was out there for sale from, I believe it was EMI. Uh, And... 
so there was competition for this. And lo and behold, you know, Michael is at the peak of his economic powers after coming off a thriller and selling uh, five gazillion, bazillion, trazillion records and had the money. And hey, Michael beat Paul for his own catalog. The Beatles, like Lennon, McCartney, Harrison catalog, again, at the time was worth $47.5 million. Now, this is one of the great artist power moves of all time and really kind of sold uh, the artist as uh, the mover and shaker with business. You know, Michael was an icon, uh, you know, brilliant dancer, brilliant singer, brilliant, you know, writer of songs wasn't that prolific but when he wrote them boy did he uh but here he showed that the artists could uh, have the power in a way you could say this paved uh the uh the path for rem to negotiate what was it like a five album 80 million dollar deal you know yeah and 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 and, and unfortunately for warner brothers Right after they signed that deal, they they just started REM started to suck after that. <laughs> yeah, and and just stuff like that, and then or like Jay Z, uh, he ended up being able to buy his own catalog, and then you know found his way to running Def Jam, started Title, and he became a gazillionaire, and so it kind of started this aesthetic of uh, artists controlling their own destiny. But not only that, but you know not having any qualms about fucking over other artists. Uh, when it when it came to business, uh, it was a competition, and Michael uh, proved that it was an admirable admirable uh, move in some ways, uh, maybe a dick move, but an admirable dick move. And uh, fortunately for Michael, when uh, Michael, uh, you know, he was one of these guys that was too crazy to have money because he spent it all, if not on his face, then on a whole bunch of gaudy shit. I mean, come on, he bought a uh, a mansion. Neverland and build a fucking amusement park and a zoo on it. Uh, and so basically every time he, he, went, he, he basically built a pedophiles, uh, a, a pedophiles amusement park. Yeah, pretty much. But the whole point being is that because he spent so uh, horrifically and uh, ridiculously and ludicrously, if he did not have this catalog, uh, I don't believe Michael ever filed for bankruptcy, but this is what kept him afloat. And I think by the time he died, it was worth like like five hundred million dollars. And it was it it basically was what kept him afloat. And it was kind of like the collateral he had to keep his uh, creditors at bay. So uh, a brilliant move that uh, ended up being uh, defensive. Now, again, I I say that as a pivot point because it as a business move there uh, kind of defining uh, Michael's uh, legacy. Uh, as just a nasty motherfucker. Well, now, those coins that you hear uh, in the background tells you that we are now entering the vault. Uh, We (laughs) do this every episode. Uh, Arturo and I have a deep, deep, deep uh, locker uh, at the bottom of the ocean that has probably a combined 2.5 million CDs and uh, (laughs) MP3s. If an mp3 is something you can put in a vault and uh, every episode we like to uh, take something out of it whether it's weird you know sometimes maybe it's you know an oldie but goodie that y'all know that's worth revisiting 
But be that as it may, we are here to drop some knowledge about some old stuff that we would love uh, it if you explored too. Arturo, what are you taking out of the vault this week? I'm taking out of the vault a classic album by uh, from the 1980s by the uh, the American punk, maybe punk, maybe post-punk kind of band, but nevertheless very underratedly influential, Mission of Burma and their 1982 album Verses. And for those astute rock music fans out there, yes, the title of the classic Pearl Jam album from 1993 was named after Mission of Burma's album. I guess supposedly Eddie supposedly Eddie Vedder was a big Mission of Burma fan. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Now, the indie underground rock scene in the U.S. was really bursting at the seams with great bands back in the 1980s. You had bands like Husker Du, the Meat Puppets, the Minutemen, Black Flag, the Replacements, uh, Sonic Youth. You know, they were all breaking new sonic ground in the genre of rock, and they were paving the way for the alternative rock revolution of the next decade, which uh, uh, you and I, Chris, have an entire 10-part series that we will talk about longer way down the road in the future. Wink, wink, hint, hint to our listeners. Now, um, Mission of Burma were probably or are probably the most underrated of these bands then and now. Um, and they are arguably one of the most underratedly influential of all these bands, oddly enough. Uh, also underrated, underrated is the Boston music scene that they came from. Um, Aerosmith, The Cars, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, The Pixies, The Lemonheads, Morphine. They all came out of there. But MOB, or Mission of Burma, were probably the most abrasive of them all and one of the most innovative. Now, describing their music is really a bit difficult because really no band sounded like them before they emerged. Uh, they've been described as post-punk, but they weren't really at all a doom and gloom band, nor did they ever venture into angular avant-garde funk. Um, they've been described as post-hardcore, but Mission of Burma weren't anything like a hardcore punk band, even if they share the same bill with some of those bands when they went out when they went out on tour. What they really were, at least to this curmudgeon, they were progenitors of alternative rock, and they were a touchstone influence on the subgenre of emo. Yes, that would that would emerge in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, their sound had the urgency of punk rock, the skillful complexity of prog rock, and the lyrical wit and intelligence of some of the best art rock bands. Uh, their music was naughty, K-N-O-T, like, like a knot. In naughty, it was intense, hard-coiled, and hard-boiled. And most importantly of all, they were startlingly original, especially when you compare them to their, their peers of their era. Now, for those of you enamored with Ian Mackay and Fugazi, I got news for you. Um, Mission of Burma is the band those guys sound most like. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, Fugazi, Fugazi didn't come up with that shit on their own. <laughs> Mission of Burma were, the num were their number one touchstone influence. Um, actually, indeed, Minor Threat, uh, Ian Mackay's hardcore punk band way before Fugazi, they and Mission of Burma shared uh, a few bills 
in the early 1980s. And wow. I bet you 100 I bet you $100 Ian McKay was watching Mission of Burma intently. Yeah. Absorbing that. Um another band heavily influenced by uh, uh at Mission of Burma at the drive-in. Yes. Probably probably the greatest emo band of them all were uh, incredibly indebted to Mission of Burma. Archers of Loaf, another band indebted uh, to Mission of Burma. Um, we know about Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam's fandom of Mission of Burma, but also Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters has name-checked them as an, as an inspiration, which I really don't hear in the Foo Fighters' music. But anyway, <laughs> um, Mission of Burma were at least 10 years of their time, ahead of their time, maybe even 20 years ahead yeah. of their time. Yeah, they no, were I think really that's ahead. You yeah, know? no, those uh, guys were, I mean, incredible songwriters, and they just bashed out. I mean, it was like incredibly uh, just hooky, uh, badass songs that they just bashed. And, but, and just, it, uh, but just original riffs and unique rhythms oh, and yeah. song structures. You know? Oh, I know. And, you know, they just were incredibly talented and influential. And, you know, Our Beloved Built the Spill, uh, yeah. you can say, actually was another one that uh, yeah. might, might have been influenced by them, too. True, Because, uh, I mean, because, look, they could play, but they could also get that crunchy aesthetic. Um, they They had a lot to say. And they said it well, like I said, verses, uh, really good uh, record. Obviously, uh, you know, their most famous song is That's When I Reach For My Revolver, uh, yep. which is, uh, I don't think there's a song on here that isn't better than that. Uh, yeah. That's how good this record is. Uh, yeah. So uh, good pick uh, for them. Uh, I haven't had a Mission to Burma phase uh, in a while. Uh, but I did listen to this record this week, and thank you for shaking yeah. shaking those yeah. trees loose in my head. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let me explain how this album was done. Go ahead. This classic of the '80s, um, the trio of Roger Miller, guitar and vocals; Clint Conley, bass and vocals; and Peter Prescott, drums and vocals as well. They formed in 1979 when the short-lived punk band uh, Moving Parts broke up the previous year. Now, Miller and Conley were in that band and decided, and decided to practice together, eventually recruiting Prescott to play drums after he left his old band, The Moles. Now, soon enough, their live shows were getting rave reviews from the local Boston music, uh, music indie fanzine scene, right? And the press landed them, that, that, that kind of press landed them a deal with Boston indie label Ace of Hearts. Hmm. Um, their first single was Academy Fight Song and with Max Ernst as the B-side. Released in 1980, the single was a huge success in the New England area. Uh, the single sold out quickly and the band hit the road at a punishing pace like many of those uh, indie bands of the 80s did. Side note, REM frequently played Academy Fight Song during their 1989 Green World Tour. Hey, how about that? Not uh, a yeah. In 1981, they put out an EP that I think you referenced, Chris, uh, Signals, Calls, and Marches, which belongs on anyone's list of the greatest EPs of all time. Uh, it contains their most well-known song, like you mentioned, That's When I Reach for My Revolver, which has been covered by a bunch of people, including Moby, Graham Coxon from Blur, and Catherine Wheel. I'd love to hear a Catherine Wheel fucking shoegazer band doing this. Song. <laughs> anyway, um, this all brings us to 1982 and the release of their full-length debut, uh, Verses. 
Now, for a band whose live sound was known for being tight, concise, loud, and unrelenting, unrelentingly aggressive, the album is actually quite expansive, uh, and it's very eclectic with a wide variety of sounds and texture. It also has some of the best songs the band ever recorded. Um, you have the intense anti-Christianity tirade, New Nails, sample lyric. The Roman Empire never died. They just changed its name to the Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, there's the tense, intense riffarama of Fun World. You have the staccato, polyrhythmic workout of OK No Way, which Husker Du would rip off a year later on their uh, on their album, uh, on their song from the gut from their EP of '83. Uh, hands down, it's one of the best albums of the 1980s and one of the true all-time classics of uh, U.S. indie rock. Now, unfortunately, their records sold well in Boston and the greater New England area and not anywhere else. <laughs> uh, they toured like true road warriors, but they never garnered an intense cult following the way peers like Black Flag or the Minutemen enjoyed. Um, if they weren't headlining less than half full shows, they were opening for bands in front of indifferent audiences. Uh, it was really a sad story. Outside of New England, no one gave a fuck about Mission of Burma. Uh, for, more in for more info about Mission of Burma, check out Michael Azarod's excellent book, Our Band Could Be Your yeah, Life, Seat. Scenes from the American Indie Underground, 1981 to 1991. He devotes a whole chapter to Mission of Burma. Yeah. Now, um, lack of even the most moderate of success on an indie level, compared with uh, combined with Roger Miller's increasing problem with tinnitus in his ear, led to their amical breakup in 1983. They reunited in 2002 and became a working band again touring and putting out four albums uh, from 2004 through 2012. They disbanded for the second and final time last year. But, hey, we still have the records, right? One single, one EP, and one album. That's all you need to understand how great and important Mission of Burma were, with Versus being the feather in this much-ignored band's cap. Uh, now we go from a band that continues to uh, be revered in some corners and is worth uh, some conversation to uh, one of the more interesting uh, bands or stories, uh, kind of a lost band, if you will, uh, Savoy Brown. And I'll be talking about the album Street Corner Talking from 1971. Uh, Bob Seeger uh, once proffered that rock and roll never forgets. Now. That might be true that rock and roll never forgets, but people forget <laughs> and uh, generations forget and radio programmers forget. And so uh, Savoy Brown was a big deal uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, they uh, were one of the early, uh, not a founder, but one of the early successes or breakouts of uh, classic rock. As we know it, yeah. uh, basically, when you hear this record, you're like, oh, I've heard a lot of stuff that sounds just like this. I mean, this is derivative. No, it's not. Everybody was derivative of Savoy Brown. So just yeah. to give a little bit of background. So uh, there's a, uh, a famous scene. Uh, most people know it from London in the late 60s 
where uh, all these uh, white bands uh, became enamored of black blues from America. And so right. you had this decidedly kind of, I don't know if you would call it psychedelic or sort of electrified, uh, edgy take on those blues by all these bands. You know, you had the Yardbirds and Cream and Fleetwood Mac, most famously. You had Jethro Tull, uh, which I guess you could kind of include in this. Uh, and then you had Savoy Brown. Savoy Brown was uh, led uh, by a guy named Kim Simmons, who I think is on a par as a guitarist with any of those other guys. Uh, maybe slightly below uh, Clapton because he didn't have that kind of tone or audacity, but uh, very good uh, virtuosic player uh, and uh, really kind of a, a he had a mind uh, to him. He was adventurous. You know, the early Savoy Brown records are very uh, orthodox and very reverent uh, of uh, American blues. So lots of covers and even a lot of the original songs are, are sort of slower and slinkier. And then, you know, you know, ditties about drugs and love and kind of, you know, kind of interesting, uh, but uh, quirky stuff. As they went along, uh, they started to uh, get a little more ambitious. Uh, one thing to note and uh, a big part uh, of uh, the story of Savoy Brown, like a lot of these bands, Jethro Tull being one of them, there is a long and illustrious history of band leaders who are mercurial and or are a pain in the ass or a perfectionist. <laughs> and they have this tendency to trade in the entire band. That is basically the entire story of uh, Savoy Brown, which is still around. Uh, Kim Simmons is still doing his thing, but it's like always Kim Simmons and three other guys who then <laughs> they get tired of him and then they leave or yeah. he fires them. And so before this record street corner talking, uh, he had been working uh, with uh, a few guys uh, and they were fired and they all went on to form Fog Hat. So, mm. so Fog Hat is essentially Kim Simmons fault. And so when we say that hey, they, Fog Hat had one good song. Yes. Slow ride. Yes. Take it easy. That's a good song. Yeah. And, and made better by the fact that um, it is uh, one of the, the, the use of it in Dazed and Confused is yeah. the best uh, use of any song on that. Record. Right. So, okay. So he trades in uh, Fog Hat and then he uh, brings in uh, a few other guys, uh, including. Uh, he had a uh, piano player, Paul Raymond. He had a ba uh, the bassist, uh, Andy Sylvester, drummer, Dave Bidwell. He got them all from this other band called Chicken Shack, which is kind of a competing band from that scene. And then he oh, all... Can I say something about Chicken Shack? Sure. Chicken Shack, Chicken Shack featured keyboardist Christine McVie. Why, yes. And yeah. uh, which is interesting because uh, the other person that Simmons hired... Uh, was new singer Dave Walker, who mm. eventually joined Fleetwood Mac uh, <laughs> in that period, uh, basically yeah. between Bob Welch and uh, Lindsey Buckingham. Dave Walker was in Fleet Fleetwood Mac for a while. So brings these guys in, and then Simmons at this point is like, you know what, I want to rev it up. I want to get a little more adventurous. And so he kind of did a jump boogie, uh, more exciting, more groovy 
uh, version of what he had been doing. And the result is this album, Street Corner Talking, uh, which I think is a near masterpiece. Uh, it's been lost. Uh, it did have a huge hit back in 1971. Uh, again, like one of these forgotten hits uh, called Tell Mama. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is just a really great uh, groovy song. Uh uh, the secret weapon of this lineup uh, was uh, Sylvester, a tremendous bassist, uh, great pocket. Uh, there's a groove all through this record, you know, fast songs, slow songs, uh, went, uh, cover of uh, Willie Dixon's Wang Dang Doodle that goes on for seven minutes. Uh, and uh, so you've got two extremes. You've got Tell Mama, which is this great radio ready rocker, uh, just, you know, jump uh, energy in your face. Awesome soloing by Simmons. Uh, it yeah. is, uh, look, I, I think you can make the argument that, uh, or there's maybe a back and forth. Who invented classic rock? Was it Deep Purple or was it Savoy Brown? Because they're kind of the earliest folks that were doing this kind of thing. You know, this sort of this sort of hooky, uh, vibrant, uh, you know, kind of up-tempo thing, 70, uh, 71. Uh, which was sprinkled with some keyboard and some organs and uh, all of uh, that kind of thing. So you've got Tell Mama at one extreme, and then on the other extreme, uh, you've uh, got the song All I Can Do, uh, which is another amazing song, co-written with Paul Raymond. Uh, it features, I think, Dave Walker's best vocal uh, on the record. And again, this is a an 11-minute song, uh, never loses its groove. Uh, in and out soloing uh, by Simmons, who again was just a masterful guy uh, and a masterful uh, guitarist. And so, again, it's a seven song uh, record. Uh, in later years, they tacked on a shorter version of uh, Tell Mama, sort of radio friendly version. And so, at the time, it was a hit. Uh, they were a staple of early AOR, very early AOR rock. Well, what happened? So uh, about starting in the early 70s, the more the theatrical stuff came in, the more metallic stuff came in. And here you have these kind of stuffy uh, uh, sort of uh, muso uh, snobby guys. Uh, famous story that Kim Simmons himself told me uh, that uh, Kiss opened for them, uh, Savoy Brown, on their first tour. Now, Kiss goes out there, puts on this fucking awesome show, you know, the demons. I don't know if they were using pyro at the time, but come on. Uh, you know, Kiss is Kiss. Even if they sucked and they couldn't really, you know, they couldn't stay in tune and they couldn't sing into the mic, they were Kiss. Uh, and so Savoy Brown, who are these like, you know, uh, not really charismatic guys have to follow them. Whoop, didn't work. So, mm -hmm. uh, but before that, the next record, they did Hellbound Train. At this point, you know, Simmons has been grinding for, you know, 10 years. Uh, he's getting fatigued. He's also uh, developing uh, problems with alcohol and drugs. Uh, the quality falls off from Hellbound Train. Uh, I think that the programmers, everybody realized that. And after that, they fell off the face of the earth, although not really. Simmons kept working. Uh, here's where it gets weird and where it kind of becomes personal for me. Uh, in his travels, you know, he's going around there. He ends up in Ithaca. I mean, who knows? Maybe, oh. at, maybe at the time he was couch surfing, he was in the, uh, the, the depths of, of his misery, but he meets the woman that saves him. He cleans up, he marries her. 
they live in Ithaca for a long time. He's still doing uh, Savoy Brown and, you know, doing touring where he can and all of that. And then they end up in all places uh, in Oswego, New York, which is an hour north of my hometown of Syracuse. <laughs> Did you ever make it up to Oswego when we were there, Arturo? I may have once or twice, but I forgot. <laughs> oh, it's it's godforsaken. Uh, it's got the most bars per capita of any city in America. A lot of alcoholism there, I imagine. <laughs> yes, a good reason, because they actually get, uh, it's colder, windier, and they might not get as much snow accumulated as Syracuse, but man, when the snow hits up there, boy, does it hit. They get like four <laughs> feet at a time. It's a miserable place. And so uh, once upon a time in my old life, I actually interviewed Mr. Simmons uh, at his on his property. It was kind of a farm up there in Oswego. And again, he's still, I mean, it was classic, you know, sort of old school, like British rocker, blues rocker from the, the, the uh, late sixties, Austin powers come to life, you know, you know <laughs> the tinted glasses and the bad teeth and all that. And he, uh, he took me out to his barn where he had all the, you know, the guitars and the pictures with muddy waters and, you know, his sort of shrine to himself. I, yep. I think, I think he kind of insinuated at the time that maybe he invented uh, classic rock with this album. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but it, it may be true again. I mean, the, the, the kind of the, the rhythmic stuff uh, is there. Uh, one thing I will mention, uh, and the only stain on this uh, this uh, this album, is they do a cover of "I Can't Get Next to You" uh, by Whitfield yeah. and Strong. Uh, the only issue is it's a copycat cover done exactly the same way as Al Green did it in the same year. Yeah, that and sucks. So, <laughs> and so the yeah. idea is, you know, basically just replace uh, Willie and Al's Trump uh, horns with yeah. uh, Kim Simmons' guitar. But it's yeah. the same thing, you know, Paul Walker doing a bad impression of uh, of Al Green in his phrasing <laughs> and the same kind of harmony vocals and all of that. But again, the uh, the saving grace is Kim, Kim Simmons. Uh, again, I, I really admire the guy. Uh, I also think he's one of the best players in that era. And so if you want to discover a very lost classic. Yes. Savoy Brown Street Corner Talking. It's on the streaming sites. Uh, you can even uh, YouTube it, especially check out Tell Mama. Awesome song. Uh, just a, a very sort of orthodox single blueprint classic rock song. And then all I can do. And then the cover of Wang Dang Doodle. These guys and this particular Savoy Brown lineup was awesome. So we now exit the vault and we have come to the uh, end of another uh, voyage of the Curmudgeon Rock Report and uh, a nice kind of fun uh, all over the place there, version of September 1985. This is what we do, oh, what a month, and who knows, there may be other oh, what a months uh, uh, coming up uh, in uh, the future of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, as always, you can hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, uh, we're on Twitter at curmudgeonpod.com. And coming very soon, uh, so something we're still working on uh, is setting up a private Facebook group. Uh, this is very exciting. Uh, we want a curmudgeonly community, and all of you are in it. You know, you are the iconoclasts. Uh, you are the uh, the leftover uh, uh, college rebels and punks, and everybody else thought you were losers. But uh, we were we were all winners in our own circle. Why? Because we had rock and roll as the soundtrack. This is your podcast. 
uh, we are your uh, you are uh, your tour guides. Uh, we're here for you. So let's leave our curmudgeonly community with one final September 1985 nugget. Super Mario Brothers debut. Remember the game's music? Of course you do. Personally, it still haunts my dreams. But that music did open the floodgates to a torrent of brilliant compositions rendered in 8 bits. The Nintendo music that followed Super Mario just rocks. Personal faves include Ninja Gaiden and Metroid. Anyway, that's all for this week, folks. Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and interact with us on Twitter. Remember, this is your podcast.